Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg, and for this episode, we have Mark Rabinowitz. Mark has had a lifelong involvement with the issues of ecology, energy, politics, and permaculture, and he runs the website peakchoice.org, cooperation or collapse from the forest outside Eugene, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you, Josh, for the invite. Yeah, well, I've known you a long time since the mid-2000s when I was out in Oregon working on forest issues. And something I really appreciate about you is that you were working on environmental issues and you did a lot of in-depth research, but you didn't just keep yourself to environmental issues. You saw the interconnections and you stressed the importance of looking at the big picture. Well, there are reasons why well-intentioned efforts for ecological sanity have not happened and they tie into many other topics as john muir said when you pull at one thing in the universe you find it's connected to everything else that's a paraphrase Mm -hmm. and understanding the political aspects psychological impacts and learning from our successes and our mistakes is absolutely critical in this time of the sixth great mass extinction. Yeah, I agree. We can't look at things in different silos. I mean, we can have our different focuses, but we've got to see where the threads unite and uh, you're doing a lot of that work. So let's just get right into some of the topics here that we, I think are worth discussing. So we are both fans to a large degree of the film Planet of the Humans. I have to be because I was in part of it, but I like the film. I think there are some things that are missing, of course. There has been a lot of critique from mainstream environmentalists, and that's been around, revolving around how dare it criticize any aspects of solar, how dare it criticize limits to growth. You have a critique, but it's a bit different than the dominant critique. So what are your thoughts on the film Planet of the Humans? Well, first, I want to just say before diving into it that I'm using solar electricity right now to power the computer I'm using to talk to you, although not the transmission between here and Colorado. I've used solar electricity for about 30 years now. It powers my house. I have solar hot water, a greenhouse, solar cooking, passive solar that I added to my house. So I'm certainly in favor of using solar energy as much as we can. But solar is less concentrated than fossil fuels, and it requires fossil fuels and minerals to make solar panels and the control equipment. We should use as much of the remaining fossils and minerals that we can, but they're not going to power a exponential growth hyper consumptive industrial society. So there's a subtlety there. It's not where the weaknesses of solar. If you haven't lived off grid in the winter when it's snowing with so-called renewable energy, you have not experienced the full essence of what it means to live off of what nature provides. Mm -hmm. As for planet of the humans, there were parts of it I really liked and there are parts I found disappointing. I thought the film didn't go far enough about what problems some of the big environmental groups have had. I appreciate that they critiqued 
industrial biomass turning forests into electricity. And I would point out for the audience that you and I and Shannon Wilson, who's also been on your program, and Samantha Shrillo, a dozen years ago, we co-organized a conference in Eugene called Clear Cutting the Climate, which is still archived at forestclimate.org. And it was a discussion about industrial deforestation, carbon sequestration of older forests versus plantations, how clear cutting can disrupt the hydrologic cycle, which is of less studied, but probably equally important aspect of forest removal. And Planet of the Humans went into this, but didn't really discuss one of the main reasons for the push for biomass electricity is for base load for the electric grid. Solar is great, but the sun doesn't shine all the time. Wind is great, but wind is also variable. And hydroelectric, well, the best sites are mostly dammed already. And with climate change disrupting moisture, we may see a decline in some places where there are a lot of hydroelectric. This is a concern for the Pacific Northwest, the Colorado River, and other places. So at the time of the conference that we had was also around the time of the 2008 economic crash where the timber companies saw a decline in housing starts, which decreased the demand for their products. So timber companies here and in the Rockies and elsewhere, most of their stockpile of trees are young and small because they've cut down the big old trees for the most part. So if they have hundreds of thousands of acres of tiny trees that are useless for lumber, well, cut them down, grind them up, and turn them into electricity. And that is a big part of the push for biomass. Fracking for natural gas has decreased the demand for a substitute for the electric grids, but we're now in a even sharper economic crash due to the pandemic. And that may cause a rush for the timber companies to find a new market for their tiny trees. Yeah, I think that's a good assessment. And we definitely want to get a little bit more into the fracking stuff in a minute, but what, where else could they have gone with the film? Where did they not go far enough? Well, I think the main, I think there are two main issues I would address. One is, it would have been nice to have a little more background about energy density, why fossil fuels are more concentrated than the, quote, alternatives. It would have also been nice to talk about some of the activist malpractice that some of these groups have done, such as claiming we can live on solar energy and not have to change the way we live, such as big environmental groups who've signed up for nuclear power, even though that is the most toxic uh, technology ever invented. Uh, they could have talked about how environmental groups hold Republicans and Democrats to different standards. If a politician is promoting pollution, I don't care if they're Republican or Democrat or anything else. Yeah, those are very, very good points, very fair. Uh, I think uh, 
I think they only went so far with the film for sure. Uh, it seemed to have been too far for a lot of people, but I think if you're really going to cover the issue, yeah, you might as well go into all of these aspects that you mentioned. Uh, anything else that you would have liked to have seen in that film? One of my big critiques of much of the environmental movement is they see it as a big political campaign. Uh, sign this petition, vote for Joe, vote for whomever. And even if you agree with those things, it's a very passive approach. Send us your money and we will do the good fight for you. I would much rather see these groups teach their so-called members who are really just donors or people on a mailing list how to grow food, how to set up cooperatives in their neighborhoods, how to do practical things that might not be from one particular political uh, perspective. The more we can enable neighborhoods, families, cities to look at real resilience, permaculture, transition towns, other approaches that are similar, we might transcend some of the political bickering that's going on and take big steps towards being less consumptive and more efficient that groups like Sierra Club and the rest are actually promoting. Practical things instead of politics. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of times, those of us who are spending a lot of our time being critical, we don't use that other part of the brain that comes up with alternatives. And of course, a lot of the so-called solutions are actually false solutions. So it's good to be skeptical of those. And I think some of us have become so gun shy about recommending anything because we don't want it to be a false solution or just some half truth that we just shy away from that. But that's not an excuse. We do have to figure out what we want to do instead and how to do it better. So I would agree with that. Well, if you like to eat food, having food grown is not a false solution. <laughs> how the food is grown might be a different question. But it takes time to learn how to even just grow vegetables in your suburban backyard. Yep. And, but there's also a tremendous amount of knowledge. It's not like we have to reinvent the wheel. I would love to see these groups teach people how to learn these skills and then teach others how to practice them. That in itself is not going to solve all the problems we've made in the era of overshoot. But this might be a way to find some common ground between Democrats and Republicans and urban and suburban and rural people. Because if we can't find some cohesion in our society, it doesn't matter what kind of wonderful plan you have. It's not going to happen. Yeah. When I was in Vermont, I was involved with some of the transition town stuff. And what was interesting was... Some of the folks involved with it are, I don't even know if they might have been conservatives. They definitely weren't leftist hippies, but there was common ground in terms of they liked doing things on the land. So I remember one of the occasions they had a potluck where we went over and we all used scythes to mow his field. And that was just a nice community connection thing. And it wasn't just about one's political ideology. Well, these days, my political ideology doesn't translate into any particular political perspective. I 
am not affiliated with any political party or political group. I think some of them have some merits on some things, but it's so limiting to just be in one particular narrow camp versus another. You know, there are places where even the Republicans, they have often better approaches on how to make the trains run on time, at least the more sane Republicans. Mm -hmm. The Democrats have their strengths. The Greens have their strengths. But as a sole entity, I'm not a fan of any of them. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I was going to say, when you were saying this, I was going to say, join the club, as in I'm in that, but we're, we're out of the club, is what it is. And uh, I prefer it this way, frankly. So anything else on Planet of the Humans, or should we get into fracking? Well, one of the things about Planet of the Humans that I think was a tactical mistake was focusing so much of the film on biomass. And I don't disagree with it, but narrowing it to one topic for the most part, or having so much of it be about that, set themselves up to be critiqued when you have these groups saying, oh, well, we were for biomass, but now we're not, and they're on a different track. One of the ways I've been deplatformed from some environmental causes is my four-decade opposition to nuclear power using a slow-motion nuclear fission to boil water, which there are not words in any language to describe how insane that is. Here at the in Eugene at the University of Oregon, they have, at least until this year, the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference. And for many years, I got to do a panel. You put in a request and they assign you a room on ecological responses to peak oil, peak everything else, limits to growth, how we can power down and be more efficient as the resources go into terminal decline. And once myself and some others challenged their mascot, uh, James Hansen, the climatologist, who is now a nuclear power advocate, uh, magically my panels never got approved again. One apologist from the conference once said to me, well, Mark, we only deal with lawyers. We're a law conference. You don't fit in. And I laughed because I said, well, I was actually applying for a panel to discuss my experience using federal transportation law to stop a $200 million freeway through a federal nature preserve in the West Eugene wetlands, yeah. which went to no build in 2007. It's one of the few highway projects that has gone to no build in the last several decades. That's an accomplishment. And the guy got kind of embarrassed. And I said, the real issue is, uh, being anti-nuclear and he wouldn't answer because of course they're also the host for the our children's trust nonprofit which is suing supposedly to get a plan so that the federal government will deal with climate change well you actually read what their plan is they're calling for more nukes yeah that's very unfortunate but yeah, that's not the only topic that you bring up that makes environmentalists, mainstream environmentalists, let's just say, uncomfortable. Because <laughs> you, you don't just swallow the typical gospel. You go a lot deeper 
and you bring up things that people aren't really talking about in the environmental movement, partially I would argue because they don't understand, but things like peak oil and things like that. Well, the earth is abundant and finite. It's, the earth is not flat, but the earth is also not getting any bigger. And we have to learn how all 8 billion of us, plus all the other species, are going to cooperate and not ruin the, the biosphere of the planet. You know, if you go from where you live to downtown Boulder or Denver, that's more than the breathable thickness of the atmosphere. Yep. You know, what's the highest mountain in Colorado? 14,000 something. Yeah. You go twice that, you're at the mountain we call Everest, and you can't really breathe up there. So what we all do is in this thin film, and we don't fully appreciate that. We've all seen the picture of the Earth floating in space, but that hasn't really worked its way into our cultural understanding of where the Earth is relative to the universe and, and its fragility. Yeah, well, certainly not enough. I think there are obviously some folks who are starting to get aspects of this, but the vast majority of people, not so much. One of the biggest environmental issues that has gotten a lot of attention over the years, and rightly so, has been the issue around fracking, fracking for natural gas. And you have uh, some very useful, pertinent, and often not discussed information on natural gas and fracking. So can you talk a bit about that? Well, I think there's two reasons why fracking has gotten a lot of attention in environmental groups. One is the obvious toxic impacts, especially to groundwater. And that's widely discussed in many places. I think there's also a you know, giggle factor that the word frack sounds like another word that starts with F and ends with K. But the reason for fracking is almost never mentioned anywhere outside some very specialized business press, and even they don't touch it very much. It's not to make money. Most fracking companies have lost money. Chesapeake Energy has gone bankrupt. Fracking is much more expensive than conventional drilling. The real reason there's fracking for so-called natural gas and, and also for oil is that the conventional fuels are on their way out due to depletion. We're not fracking because these companies like polluting aquifers. We're fracking because that's what's left. Mm. So natural gas in the U.S. peaked in 1973. Domestic oil peaked in the United States in 1970. Two-thirds of the natural gas in the U.S. is now fracked as of 2019. Two-thirds of the domestic oil is also fracked. And if it wasn't for fracked fuels, we would have energy rationing and a crashed economy. Now, I would vote to ban fracking, but fracking postponed rationing. And I've had a couple environmentally oriented experts over the years go, yeah, you're right, but I don't know of any environmental group that's willing to say that loudly. Now, if we could recognize where we are, if we had an accurate map of where we are as a society, as an industrial civilization, maybe we could make better choices allocating what's left. But yeah. to pretend that 
none of this matters and that we can conjure energy up out of thin air, that's as much denial as uh, conservatives who claim that climate change is not real and it's all a Democratic Party hoax. There's more than one way to deny energy reality. Yes, many flavors of that. For folks who want to find some of that data, where would they go? If you go to peakchoice.org, I have a page called Fracking Postponed Rationing, along with charts that show the rise and fall of conventional oil and conventional gas, and how fracking for now has uh, buffered the difference. Fracked, fracked wells also deplete much faster than conventional wells, so you have to drill faster and faster to keep in place. And I'm concerned not so much about Trump being reelected. I don't think that's likely, although it could be wrong. But when Biden comes in, Biden was part of the team that started fracking going a dozen years ago. But if fracking can't be sustained much longer, I'm not even talking about the toxic impacts, just the ability to provide fuels to keep cities functional and heated in the winter, mm -hmm. there will be a huge backlash if there's not enough to go around. And since people in our society don't know where their stuff comes from, we don't have what the pilots call situational awareness, the amount of scapegoating and blame and anger could accelerate far more than it even has. We could end up with an administration as nasty as Trump, but more competent. For all of his bluster, Trump has not really been that effective at implementing what he's doing. It's all just a big show for him. And we could end up with something much worse. Hmm. We could no. also end up with something much better, but yeah. that would require the courage collectively to see where we really are and to cooperate more. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. So one of the tricky things about this, and I've encountered this when I say things like, well, um, yes, these fossil fuels are polluting and they are destroying the climate, but we're not gonna just be able to put a solar Band-Aid on and that solves everything. And then they say, oh, it sounds like you love fossil fuels. And obviously partially they're just trying to win points in an argument because personally I've been opposed to the impacts. I've been very concerned about the impacts of fossil fuels forever. That's one of the first things that I, I was concerned about with my bicycle advocacy. So I don't even know if they're being completely serious about that, but I do think that they can't make the connection. So they're just saying, well, it sounds like you love fossil fuels. So when you say things like they're denser, you know, that, that's a fact, but people a lot of times will say, that sounds like you're advocating for this energy source. So what would you say to that? Because that's a common thing that comes up. Well, the most obvious is nearly every bite of food that any of us listening to this program have ever eaten in our lives was a result of fossil fuels. Now, I have a big garden. I eat some food out of my garden, but there's a indirect fossil fuel subsidy to that. Yeah. Uh, most of the people who are doing this binary thinking are using fossil fuels, live in a building that's heated with fossil fuels. Uh, there's a incorrect view that if you're using electricity, that is somehow not fossil fuels. 
but almost all the electricity in the United States comes from fossil fuels, either directly or indirectly. The amount of solar and wind on the electric grid is not much. It's more than it used to be. It also takes fossil fuels to make solar panels, control equipment, computers, wire, transformers, turbines, cement, trucks. I mean, you start looking into this, it never ends. And to be more efficient in our use of these non-renewable resources would be nice. That's not sustainable, but it would be efficient. And like you, I once did a lot of bicycle advocacy and critical mass and decided that going after highway approvals probably would have more impact. Mm -hmm. I was involved in an effort when I lived in Maryland that stalled but did not stop a multi-billion dollar component of the Washington Outer Beltway called the Inter-County Connector. We stalled it in 1997 and came back under Bush and was completed by Obama. And it punched through six really nice second growth forested uh, county parks, tore up wetlands and endangered habitat. And the Autobahn Society locally uh, helped sell us out by doing incompetent legal efforts that threw away their legal case. In Eugene, in uh, 2007, as I mentioned, I helped get a no-build decision for a $200 million West Eugene Parkway. And I found some environmental groups were supportive, but we also had the problem of some environmental groups who were more concerned about appearing to be the saviors for the community while undermining their own efforts out of ego rather than cooperating in a competent way. So if someone says, I'm in favor of fossil fuels and think they're lovely, well, I've been challenging freeway approvals for a quarter century. And I would add, there are roughly a trillion dollars, one trillion dollars of highway expansions that are being built both new projects and widening projects all over the country. And I don't know of any environmental group in the country that has discussed the full extent of this. Uh, there are groups that have fought highway projects, but they tend to be smaller groups where it's impacting their backyard. And curiously, in the last two decades, most of the environmental groups that have taken the strongest stands against highways, such as in Indiana and Kentucky and California, they're in places where the local authorities are more conservative. So the environmental groups realize that, say, the government of Indiana is not their ally, it's not their funder, and they were free to take a strong stand. It didn't stop the highway, they lost, but at least they had more integrity in their efforts to prevent it. Yeah, it's definitely an issue that's not tackled much. It might be because of the complexity. It might be because it's just out of their purview. It's also maybe because it's not sexy enough, right? There are certain topics that are obviously sexier than others, but I agree it's really important. Out here in Colorado, there have been some groups that have been fighting a what they're calling the Plutonium Parkway because it's adjacent to Rocky Flats, the former nuclear weapons site, which has plutonium contamination all over the place. So they were able to leverage that, but most places don't have that as a way to push back. 
Yeah, well, the Rocky Flats Parkway is, that, that's kind of a unique circumstance. Yes. I think a different, an extra reason is the Democratic politicians, for the most part, are pro-highway and also pro-public transit, whereas most of the Republican politicians just want the highways, and there are not a lot of Republicans who are big fans of public transit. So the Democratic Party environmental groups, and most of these groups are part of the Democratic Party, they don't have much maneuverability to oppose highways that Democratic politicians are in favor of. It's not a blanket analysis for all of these projects everywhere, but that's more, it tends to be more the case than not. Yeah, and I know another argument you've made in the past regarding highway expansion is that the trend is that there's going to be less driving, so it's kind of a dumb thing to do. Well, if it wasn't for fracking, uh, what's called vehicle miles traveled would have peaked about a dozen years ago. And it takes energy to make highways uh, functional. Now, federal transportation law that was signed by George Bush the first says that a new highway project like the Rocky Flats Highway or any other is not for existing traffic, but for traffic two decades in the future. Right. Now, anyone making a prediction on where we will be 20 years from now is almost certainly going to be wrong, but to ignore it is the biggest mistake of all. Mm. Now, with the pandemic, traffic has dropped dramatically, uh, aviation even more so, and even if we get a vaccine and life comes back to normal next year, which is maybe a little Pollyanna for my taste, but it could happen, we are going to bump up to the limits to energy production. Even if 10 million people buy electric cars, it takes fossil fuels to make the electric cars. There's minerals that are taken from places like Congo, which has one of the worst wars on the planet, uh, Bolivia with the lithium, and just the implementation of all of this is a lot more challenging than uh, you know, almost sort of childish rhetoric assumes. So we are gonna have less travel, whether people like it or not, not because it's dictated by environmentalists or politicians, but the earth has only so much stuff we can extract from it. Yeah, I think that's very true. And ultimately, I think it's that message that really upset people about Planet of the Humans. But so, okay, fossil fuels, they're, they're climate busting, we're running out of them. Nuclear power is a disaster waiting to happen or disaster that's already happened. Solar and wind, it's just not enough to go around. So what are we supposed to do? Well, the number one mitigation that I like the most is relocalize food production. So why do we send food across time zones when a lot of it can be grown locally? Uh, we also have the issue of meat production. And this is not an animal rights concern. This is a efficiency and ecology concern. One of the things that has spread disease more than almost anything else is meat production. Yeah. Uh, 
zoonosis is a term about diseases that jump from wildlife to people. And with coronavirus, uh, we can see a great example of this. SARS-1, almost two decades ago, was an example. HIV came from eating wildlife. Ebola came from eating wildlife. Uh, there's a disease called Nipah virus, N-I-P-A-H, that was first found in Malaysia about two decades ago. It's 40% lethal to people, 40%. Mm -hmm. And we're worried about the current coronavirus, which might be about 1%. So a 40% of lethal disease caused by fruit bats dropping fruit into pig pens, and then the pigs got sick and infected the farmers, and 40% of them died. If that became widespread, that could trigger collapse on a scale we don't even really want to contemplate. In the US, we also have almost all the antibiotics are fed to farm animals in crowded pens. And that is creating antibiotic resistant disease that threatens to undo the medical gains of the last century. So eating more efficiently, more plant-based diet, and more local diet, you don't have to have trucks tr taking your salad for 2,000 miles. That's not going to solve the issue of limits to growth, but that's a huge part of what's needed as a mitigation. Yeah, and you think that would be something that everyone could come on board for? I don't think anyone really opposes that, or most environmentalists aren't against growing lettuce locally, but they're not very interested, it seems, uh, being a part of anything to really make that happen more. Well, there's also a cultural disconnect from where our food actually comes from. I think most of us understand that being a migrant farm worker is not a very pleasant life and very stressful. It's not a surprise that a lot of the outbreaks of corona have been among farm worker communities where they can't socially distance, they don't have as the access to healthcare and resources. You can't work from home and being a farm worker. It's not possible. You also have the problem that, let's say the federal government gave everybody a free bag of beans and rice as a economic stimulus. There's a lot of people who don't really even know how to cook for themselves. I think that's part of the political pressure for reopening restaurants is if you have people who are uncertain how to prepare their own meals, well, then their dependence on restaurants or fast food restaurants becomes even more critical. I mean, I get bored of my own cooking at times, but I know how to take beans and make a meal from them. And this is not really, this is not a widespread thing in our, in our culture. Yeah. Well, the food thing, and it brings everyone together. I do think that's a great way for everyone to start because literally you can eat food together, although maybe right now eat food by yourself. <laughs> but in the next few years, we can start eating food together. And I think that's super important. Well, I have been to a potluck lately, but we all brought our own food and we weren't hugging, unfortunately. So, uh, and it's sort of a timeout to think about what actually matters. But it's also been something that if you read through the public health literature, none of this is a surprise. It's like living on an earthquake fault. You can't predict when the earthquake is going to happen. 
but that the earthquake eventually does happen shouldn't surprise anybody. Yeah, there was some show I was watching online, I don't remember, and it was a somewhat reasonable person sometimes, and they said something like, yeah, we couldn't have known that something like this would happen. It's like, oh, except for all of the scientists and anyone who paid any attention to disease knowing this forever. <laughs> so ridiculous. And we obviously didn't prepare for it. But so ecologically speaking, do you think this is a good way for us to start basically taking more ownership of our destruction of the natural world? So we obviously have the meat issue and the fact that Whatever, if, if you're taking certain species from nature, obviously that they can be a vector. We have probably even a bigger vector, which is just the factory farms. But then the idea of just ecosystem destruction. So do you think this is a good opportunity for us to connect more to ecology? I would call it a negative good. It's not a good thing that it's happening. Yeah. But as our president said, it is what it is. And it's a giant warning that we need to heed in a way it's almost an exercise because we there are other diseases in the world that are much more virulent than this one now this is especially transmissible much more so than say ebola or sars-1 or some of the others those are diseases that if you catch it you get too sick to travel and therefore you're not going to spread the disease as much uh, COVID-19 uh, the novel coronavirus you can spread it without even feeling to be sick which makes control extremely difficult but it's not a good thing it would have been a good thing if we heeded the original warnings of earth day or the warning of chernobyl and three mile island or the warnings that rachel carson had in 1962 with her book silent spring that just decide a few but we still have some maneuvering room but it's less than we did decades ago and a lot of what passes for modern or postmodern environmentalism acts like these are all concerns that we just learned about yesterday and if we work really hard we have 10 years to solve the climate crisis or whatever number people are making up Unfortunately, the truth is we have collectively ignored the warnings for decade after decade, and it gets worse each time. And that is a hard thing to admit because it's not just about the captains of industry denying climate change or Donald Trump is a bad president. It's that we, we all own a piece of this ourselves. Now, I don't want to equate the responsibility of the average person with the head of Exxon or uh, Donald Trump or anybody else. But to claim that we are innocent and it's all just they who are doing this to us, well, that's a form of projection and denial that makes a coherent response much less likely. Projection and denial over and over and over again, pretty much in every topic these days, that's just kind of the status quo and it's pretty awful. And obviously, I'm no advocate for pandemics. I've been worrying about pandemics for many years. I write about them in my journalism and in my fiction. But it's clear that we humans, we need something not great to happen for us to really pay attention. The question is, is it bad enough for people to actually wake up? 
I think there are a wide variety of responses, and some are more coherent than others. Uh, there was a graffiti I saw back in March from Germany where someone wrote on a wall, the coronavirus is a wake-up call to build a more loving society. And that is the best case scenario, that we could have a societal immune response that would address the countless things wrong in our society, the plight of farm workers, the plight of refugees, the disproportionate impact this has on so-called minority and low-income communities versus others. Yeah. But you also have a lot of crazy making. Uh, the amount of sheer nonsense and disinformation that is being spewed that this is all planned to in a giant conspiracy to ruin our president's reelection or it's a plot by the vaccine companies and just all sorts of to be polite insane stuff that it shows a lack of basic science education in our society and it's also a lot of transmutation of fear you know there's a lot of people who are very concerned if not just for themselves but for elderly relatives and and it only it doesn't only impact the old as well and rather than address these concerns it gets projected outward into anger so you have a lot of people who aren't thinking very clearly and they're led by the nose by YouTube videos and uh, Facebook posts that might not actually be truthful. Whereas we could also see this as an opportunity to actually go, well, viruses don't care about your feelings. They're remarkably immune to that, so to speak. And physical reality matters whether you're talking about the spread of respiratory diseases or climate change or resource depletion or overpopulation, uh, toxic pollution, nuclear waste, et cetera. Yeah, well, lots of folks have been talking about like that graffiti artist in Germany, that this is an opportunity for us to do things differently. I also know some people who are saying, this is actually gonna devolve and degrade us <laughs> because we're suffering, we're going nuts, all sorts of things. Which, what's your prediction? <laughs> well, it's confusing because in some ways things are getting better, not just with the pandemic, but in general. Yeah. But things are also getting worse as well. Yeah. So you have tremendous scientific cooperation to try to understand what's going on with the pandemic and mitigate it. But you also have misery and suffering that, a lot of it is unnecessary and avoidable. You have more cooperation in the world and more hunger and pain in the world. So is it getting better? Yes. Is it getting worse? Yes. It depends on where you look. It's not one or the other. It's seeing that these are all interconnected. If we were to shift away from competition towards cooperation, if we reallocated military warfare plans and domination towards peaceful cooperation, would that be enough? It's impossible to answer completely, 
but we're not even really trying apart from platitudes. Yeah. Well, this might be a good opportunity to transition into some other topics that I know you wanted to discuss. And I do think have connections to environmental issues, but might even go deeper. And I think they're worth getting into somewhat. So you mentioned the military. And of course, most people who are working on protecting the woods, they don't necessarily think much about connections between military and things like that or anything like that, right? They're, they're focused on this little thing, not looking at the greater whole. But one of the pieces that you talk a lot about is where things started to go wrong in terms of the government in the U.S. and tying that into JFK. So that was a very clumsy <laughs> transition. But do you want to talk a little bit about the significance of that guy who was shot, who a lot of younger folks are like, okay, well, that's too bad. And maybe it was weird, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, I'll tie it into forests first. The world's biggest forest is, I assume most people know now, is the Amazon Basin Rainforest. And the Amazon has been getting cut down for a very long time, but the acceleration of the destruction happened in 1964. Why 1964? Well, Brazil had been a democracy, an imperfect one, headed by a man named Goulart, was overthrown by the Brazilian military and the US Central Intelligence Agency. He was a leftist who the United States did not approve of. The Brazilian elite did not approve of him either. And once he was thrown out and they had a military junta, the clear-cutting of the Brazilian Amazon increased radically. Uh, now we have Mr. Bolsonaro, who wants to bring back a military government and hasn't quite completely succeeded at that. He's sort of halfway there. And he has also massively accelerated the deforestation in the Amazon and the attacks on indigenous peoples there even before the outbreak of the pandemic. And the lack of democratic transparency is directly tied to the lack of good policies on environment or public health, uh, energy conservation, etc. President Kennedy was removed from office after he called for an end to the Cold War announced a nuclear test ban with the Soviet Union, announced a joint effort going to the moon with the Russians. He did that in September 1963, speaking to the United Nations. He called for withdrawal from Vietnam and signed an order to start that. He called for re restarting uh, relations with Castro's Cuba and other policies that were radically different than where the empire was pushing before him or after him. Now, this is a topic that has a lot of ridicule around it and a lot of ridiculous claims around it. And it's supposedly some great mystery that, well, we'll never figure out what really happened and it's fun to speculate about, but we have no idea what happened, which is utterly ridiculous. It's blatantly obvious that there was a conspiracy. That does not mean every claim of conspiracy is correct, but the motive is the real topic. And the motive was 
that is about to be released by Oliver Stone, who this is a documentary, um, unlike his movie JFK from 1991, which was a slightly fictionalized reenactment of what happened. The scriptwriter's name is Jim DiEugenio, who is one of the best authors on the topic. His website is Kennedy's plural and king.com. And his specialty is Kennedy's foreign policy. And having read his books and website, uh, the film will clearly focus on Kennedy's efforts to prevent nuclear war and implement decolonialization. What would the world be today if the Cold War had ended in Kennedy's second term, if the resources for endless militarism had been converted to peaceful purposes, how would we be coping with coronavirus? How would we be coping with energy depletion? Would we have a billion hungry people in the world, if not more? The, these and other about the collapse of politics here, overpopulation, overconsumption, climate change, uh, it almost doesn't really matter what your particular focus is, as long as we live in denial about how we got to where we are, we're not going to be able to shift in a better way. Sure. And you believe things go back further than even stuff around JFK, of course, that a big turning point was Hiroshima. Well, you could also bring it back to uh, slavery and Columbus and the invention of agriculture, if you want to go back that far enough. But for the breakdown of what happened to our society, uh, as Einstein warned, the splitting of the atom changed everything except our mode of thinking. Thus, we drift toward catastrophe. And we just had the 75th anniversary of the attack on Hiroshima. Today is the anniversary of Nagasaki. And that was in many ways about the most profound thing that humanity has ever done. One of the scientists who was who witnessed the first test in New Mexico uh, a couple weeks before Hiroshima said at the time, George Kistikowski, that the last moment of the human race will see what we just saw now. Mm. And atomic weapons are so opposite to our survival as a species, as a planet, as a, as life that, you know, we may have all seen the images from Beirut last week where roughly a one kiloton explosion, a 10th the size of Hiroshima wiped out their port and damaged a big chunk of their city. And that is almost an unprecedented disaster, but we have hydrogen bombs aimed all over the world, aimed at every large city on the planet, ready to go. You know, not that far from where you live, there are missiles in Eastern Colorado that are just waiting for the go code to fly off to Russia and commit atrocities on a scale we can't even really comprehend. And this is tolerated in our society. It's not even secret that this is going on. It's just something that we're in denial about. You can learn as much as you like about atomic warfare. It's not like the Nazi Holocaust where 
people were killed for revealing what was going on. Germans, not Jewish people, but non, non-Jewish German people lost their lives over this. Uh, with atomic weapons, you can read, you can read an environmental impact statement on this. You can learn as much as you care. And the problem is most people don't care because it is scary. And anyway, there's a ball game on TV and you know, some celebrity said something stupid on Twitter and we need to pay more attention to that. Whereas this is a slow motion destruction of the planet, like Rocky Flats, even if none of the products from Rocky Flats is ever detonated, the long-term ecological impacts of that place is slow motion pollution that is not going to go away until we've had a couple of ice ages. That's the scale of what we're dealing with. And it is so overwhelming to deal with that, that most people tune out. It's why the climate change effort has not been all that effective because it's not just calling attention to climate change. We'd have to change the way we live and scale back. And that does not poll well in focus groups. Yeah, that's, that's for damn sure. And there aren't any corporate foundations that are willing to fund that either. Well, and that's one of the things that I thought was the highlight in the film Planet of the Humans was asking Bill McKibben who funds him. And gradually it came out through the interviewer's pressure that, oh, yeah, the Rockefeller Foundation. Yeah, they give us a lot of money. Well, who is the Rockefeller Foundation? What are they invested in? They're totally dependent on interest from their investments. Uh, I recommend the concept of steady. State capitalism, but something radically different. How do we have an economic system, a monetary system that is compatible with a finite planet that's not increasing the rate of extraction? To be fair, there are no steady state economies anywhere in the world that I'm aware of, but as a more stable system than what eventually leads to hyperinflation, there are some models that may have some use but we're not going to have billionaires in that sort of circumstance. Mm-hmm. So all these issues here, which obviously are extremely important, a lot of this is getting to the root of what's going on. And many of us sense something is awry, but we don't know what it is. So let's say we figured out some of these things. Uh, so what? No one's listening to us. What are we supposed to do? Uh, if you find someone who has the perfect answer for that um, <laughs> Please let everybody know. <laughs> I think some of this is psychological much more than political. Uh, my favorite effort other than permaculture and transition town type processes is what's called truth and reconciliation. This was originated in South Africa after the end of apartheid. They had a not so low level civil war going on. And Nelson Mandela, the new president, realized they would have a totally ungovernable country. So they created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Perpetrators of politically motivated crimes, even murder, got a get out of jail card free, get out of jail free card, if they told what they had done in public with the TV cameras rolling. And it helped shake 
out some of the denial, especially on the white side. It wasn't perfect, but it diffused the situation. Unfortunately, since then, their population has doubled, which makes dealing with the economic inequality much more difficult. The truth and reconciliation has spread to countries all over the world, none of them perfectly. In Canada, they had a truth and reconciliation for their Indian reservation schools, where kids were basically kidnapped from their families and taught that English was the only language they should learn, or French if they were in Quebec. And what I've heard from the First Nations there is they're not really happy with how the process went. And, but the imperfections of, of these processes doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It's more that we haven't really given it the energy that it deserves. Uh, Oliver Stone and his scriptwriter, Jim Diogenio, are part of something called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee for the United States issues. And they are focusing on the state-sponsored assassinations of President Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and presidential candidate Robert Kennedy. Uh, in 1999, the Martin Luther King family had a trial in Memphis, which has gotten almost no attention, not just in the corporate media, but the alternative media, or even the NAACP, for that matter, won't even touch it. They had a three-week trial as a truth and reconciliation process for the martyrdom of Martin. Martin Luther King was shot by a Memphis police officer working in cahoots with the federal government, yet that gets zero attention anywhere. They weren't asking for a prosecution or the death penalty or anything like that. They just wanted the truth to come out so that it would be dealt with in a mature way. Yeah, I think that concept is a beautiful one. I think it's something that we can really apply across the boards and obviously would look differently in different situations, but <coughs> it's different than just punishing people, right? Calling people out and punishing them. I think social justice is a beautiful thing. I think social vengeance, whereas it might feel good and it might seem like it's uh, getting people getting their just desserts, it doesn't ultimately get us anywhere. It doesn't work. It, it can actually devolve us and degrade us in many ways. Uh, for instance, the situation that's going on right now with George Floyd, and basically that's nothing new, of course, right? Uh, police have been killing people, particularly black people in the U.S. for a long time. It seems like the general public has finally caught up to that all at once. So the question is, we need to do something about that. There are some efforts that seem like they're positive and certainly calling attention to it, but it might be a truth and reconciliation thing is the way to go for that. Well, the Minneapolis city councils actually had some discussions about truth and reconciliation, not just for the case of George Floyd or mm -hmm. others. Yeah. But what would be justice for George Floyd? Nothing can make him alive again. There's nothing that you can do to un undo that crime. That's done. Um, in Beirut right now, there's, huge amount of anger over the criminal negligence that led to their explosion. But what punishment could undo that? You know, there's probably hundreds who've been killed, thousands wounded, the city's parts of it's in ruins. Even if the death penalty was applied, that doesn't undo all that harm. And 
doesn't undo it. And the question is, will it prevent future harm too? Well, part of the prevention would be not just for the police or the CIA or the government of Lebanon or whomever to apologize for what they've done. We have to see our own level of acquiescence. It's not the same level as you know these large institutions that have committed crimes, but their crime committing is also a function of knowing that the public will tolerate it. So with the Kennedy assassination, the plotters understood that the media would not probe too deep, the politicians would be intimidated from doing so, and you know, George Floyd, that was particularly egregious, but the list of similar crimes and you, you could fill an encyclopedia with them. Yep. And so for people to tolerate this makes it fester and get worse. And we have to see our own roles in that. That's not to exonerate, pun intended, the roles of big institutions and big governments and biased media of various kinds, but our own acquiescence to this out of convenience is a huge part of what we do have control over. And if we can get control over that, then we can go outward and be more effective advocates for shifts in the way our society works. Yeah, and I very much agree with that. And I try to bring a lot of situations back to that. Okay, definitely that corporation's doing that horrible thing, but in what way are we feeding into that? In what way are we allowing that? And I do find that that, is I get a lot of blank stares because they're like, no, no, didn't you hear what I heard said? The corporation did it. I'm like, no, I understand that. And I am not discounting any of that. I'm saying that the corporation exists because we keep buying their crap or we are allowing these certain laws in place that we don't do anything about or talking about. We don't share the information that would actually blow things wide open. Kind of in a sense, individuals, we can do this what's called shadow work where we look at ourselves and our psyche and say, here's the pieces I'm responsible for that maybe you're not great, but I'm going to shine a light on it. I'm going to own it. And that's how I change it. It seems like people don't want to do that though. Well, it's, it takes more sophistication and humility than just finding someone to blame or execute or make fun of or whatever your response is going to be. Um, there's a great quote from, Solzhenitsyn, where he said that uh, it would be so much easier if there were just some bad people that we could punish. But the truth is that the line between good and evil runs through every heart. And to recognize that within ourselves is much more difficult, but it's also much more rewarding. And moving beyond the shaming and blaming about this to recognizing that we're all here on Spaceship Earth together, I mean, that may not eventually work, but I think it's much more beautiful to focus on that rather than just focusing on the other. And for the people on the more liberal side who are still stuck with that, I've found 
generally the conservatives are much better at blaming than the liberals. And that in itself is a reason to try to think of something more creative. If just blaming and punishing was going to work to make a better world, we'd be living in utopia now. And clearly that approach has run its course. Yeah, I agree. But it does involve some deeper level stuff. It involves going beyond the surface, both in terms of politics and in terms of our own psyche. And do you think that it's that people aren't capable of it or is it that they're not willing to do it? I think it's a lot about programming through media, through movies, through tribal identification, whether you're this flavor of religion or that flavor of politics, seeing people as the other is a big part of this. And we could come back and do some shows on that. Yeah, I think that's really central. I, I definitely think it's central. But I think what people will say, and they have said, and I think they're doing this partially on purpose, but they're saying, well, it sounds like you're apologizing for their behavior. It sounds like you're an apologist. It sounds like you actually are supporting these things, which of course is not what we're doing, especially folks like you and I who have spent our lives working on these issues. But I think it's just there's a disconnect. So when they hear us saying things like, no, well, maybe we shouldn't chop their heads off for doing that thing. Like, oh, it sounds like you think what they did was fine. It's like, no, I also think it was a terrible thing, but I want to see how we can progress with this and maybe starting to see, well, I'm not, I don't know if I could ever have become that CEO that poisoned that town. I mean, who knows, but I do know that I, I'm not pure and that I'm sure that there is some thread where I'm connected to that or something like that. And all of a sudden when I start acknowledging that, yeah, I want to have some compassion for myself. I want to have compassion for them. It doesn't mean I'm going to allow them to do that again. In fact, it's the opposite. What would actually be effective? Because what we've done thus far, it's not been working, like you've said. So how about it's time to try something else? But again, every time, maybe not every time, but most of the times when you bring this up, people aren't at that stage where they can accept that or even understand it or whatever, like you said, because they've been programmed. So you just get blank stares and then they don't want to talk to you anymore. Well, and I think things are getting so extreme of the United States, the biggest empire in history my guess is he's going to be out in a couple months, mercifully. Not that I'm a fan of, you know, Mr. Biden either. Mm. And I think it's an opportunity for a lot of soul searching on what happened. Of course, I also thought that after Ronald Reagan and I was wrong. Uh, and then I thought it again after uh, Bush one and then Bush two and I was wrong. Uh, so, you know, I, I reserve the right to be wrong on all of these things. For sure. But when you have all these crises, the ones we've talked sane response, assuming that there is a sane response, would wonder why things get worse and worse and worse. And yes, there's signs to look at that are hopeful, but 
the amount of positive things that are going on to undo these problems doesn't seem to have that much impact on the negative ones. And that it's getting better and worse at the same time is confusing. The cultural narratives rarely hint at the bigger pictures. There's virtually no leadership, and that's not just in the United States, but everywhere else, because one of the truths is Are, is not sustainable and how to get from overshoot to something that is more compatible with the way our planet functions you know there are plenty of people who have sketched out aspects of this some better than others but nobody has the total picture and it's going to require us to use our creativity and our cooperative skills more than we ever have if you look at the very long history of humanity longer than ancient greece but going back before language our survival ability is our cooperation and sharing food in groups we're going to have to take that cooperative ability and extend it through modern communication to the whole world i'm not saying it will happen i'm not saying it won't happen but as a prerequisite for our survival on Spaceship Earth, or only home, we're going to have to shed some of our ego collectively and see that we're all in the same lifeboat and there's no escape. We all know this at a certain level. There's some efforts that make me hopeful we will come to this understanding, but even if we do, there's been so many missed opportunities that the long-term damage of a rocky flats or deforestation or any other disaster, uh, it, it has a tremendous sadness. And that's where doing some grief processing as well as relocalization projects with people in your community, that seems to me a big part of the way out. Yeah, we got to do the head, the heart, and the hands, right? It's like we've got to understand the psychological aspects and use our intellectual brain. We've got to go into our emotions and our relationships, and we got to do stuff physically with our fingers. So, yeah, I would, I would support all of that. So are there any other pieces you want to communicate to the vast number of people who <laughs> listen to this podcast? Uh vision and practicality in combination and thanks for your attention and your concern great well thanks so much mark